The beauty of storytelling is that you can draw people into characters and show that point of view without supporting that point of view. And you can create the sense of empathy that isn't advocating what that group necessarily believes, but it just shows them and portrays them as a real person, right? And you can kind of walk the reader through the thought process of that particular person. And if you're doing a good job, it will come out as realistic, even if your author's voice shows that you don't agree with those people. Hey everyone, Nisha here. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 8 of Migrations. That's right, Episode 8. I've committed to 16 episodes this season, so that means we're halfway through. I am so excited to share more stories with you. I really want to continue this into the next season, and to do that, I need your help. I know these are tough times, so if you can spare it, please head over to my Patreon page at www patreon.com slash migrations to keep this show going. I have so many more cool guests and topics to discuss. I also have a new reward for my $5 and up patrons, migration stickers. That's on top of getting sneak peeks into the episode and other updates from me. Your help goes a long way into supporting this show, and I truly appreciate it. If you can't help financially, I understand, but you can still help. Just head over to the show and give me a rating. Write me a review. Do both. Thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting a show that centers Asian voices. On today's episode, I'm interviewing writer James Yu. I actually know James because he's in my writing feedback group. Writing can be so isolating, and I'm very grateful for the past two years I've had a writing feedback group not only to get feedback from, but build community. We meet almost every week, and James recently joined. I love his enthusiasm, work ethic, and spot-on critiques. His writing is so descriptive and action-packed. I never thought I could get into fantasy writing, but James is changing my mind. All right, let's get started. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm interviewing James Yu. James is the son of Taiwanese immigrants, a proud Texan expat, a writer, and former missionary. He used to work in finance, but made the leap into full-time writing more than a year ago. He writes fantasy using his ancestral knowledge as a backbone to his work. He's currently working on a fantasy heist novel set in a world inspired by 1930s China. Find James at www.jameslu.com and sign up for his newsletter. I'll include the link in the show notes. So just for context, today we are recording on Tuesday, April 14th. So most places in the U.S. have a shelter-in-place order, including where James and I both are in L.A. Um, a lot of them, at least ours, as of today, is extended through May 15th. So James, first of all, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Anisha. So I know that you're a full-time writer, can you talk, one, about how you made the jump into writing full-time and also how that is different now in the age of COVID-19? Yeah, that's a good question. So for about five years prior to making this transition, I was a financial advisor, just basically helping people manage their finances. It's a career I kind of fell into. I didn't expect to be doing it. And then three years down the line, it ended up getting licensed and eventually started calling it my career. And then I realized I didn't really want to do it anymore. I had a pretty toxic relationship with my boss at the time. And so 
throughout this whole time, I was also just writing on the side. You know, every day after work, my routine was basically get off of work, go to the gym, take a shower, drive to my co-writing space that I was going to at the time, work from seven to nine, go home and just like knock out. And so I already had been writing for some time, but when I left my job, I thought, you know, I've already demonstrated enough discipline with this as a part-time gig, maybe I can do it full-time. And so that was kind of what initiated my journey into basically being a full-time writer. I think the question about what it's like right now during coronavirus is very interesting because, you know, so many people are feeling that sort of community withdrawal. They're not around people very much anymore. And that's really taking a toll on people's lives. I think I benefited from the fact that writing is just naturally very introverted. And so to a large extent, not much has changed. You know, I used to go to a co-working space to do writing. Now I just write from home, which is a little less. There are a few people. It's just me sitting in my bedroom every day. But qualitatively, it feels the same. How are you able to make writing a little more social now that you don't have that like human to human contact? So throughout kind of my career as a writer, I've had the opportunity to network with a lot of people and maintain a lot of relationships, either in person or online. And what I would often do is try to, even before the quarantine, invite people into when I was working. So for example, I'd say, hey, I'm working at this co-working space. You want to join me? Or hey, I, you know, I live right down the street from USC. I'm going to be at the library. Let's have a write-in. Right? So when coronavirus hit, it seemed like this is the perfect opportunity to do something more regular. Everyone's transitioning to Zoom. Everyone's basically working in an online format. So I was like, oh, why don't we do something where we meet regularly every morning from 9 a.m. to 12 noon and just do writing sessions? And not only does it help us stay productive, it also keeps uh, giving us community. It makes us feel like we're still having some sort of semblance of rhythm. And I think that's been really important. This goes back to the earlier point about just how I'm doing a little better right now, mainly because as a full-time writer, it was very much up to me to like dictate my schedule. Hypothetically, I could just waste all my time for like the entire day and not do anything. So I had to always set those boundaries. Like, you know, this hour, I'm going to do this task. This next hour, I'm going to do this next task. I will start the day at this time and I'll end it at this time because there's no outside force, no boss or supervisor telling me this is when you start and stop working. And so I was able to bring a little bit of that into the quarantine, which I'm really grateful for. Yeah, I can see, um, like for myself, I work in a physical space. I'm working with people. So then, you know, now I feel like after a few weeks of working at home, I've developed my own routine, but it took me a little time. So if you already kind of have your own boundaries, it's a little easier of a transition, I can see. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly how I describe it. One thing you had mentioned was that you have a double migration story. Can you talk a little bit more about what that looks like? So the way I would characterize it is, so my parents are Taiwanese immigrants. Uh, They came over here, I think in the 80s, when immigration from Asia was relatively easy. And a lot of people would come, they would get established, and then they would bring over their entire family. And so my entire dad's side of the family is here because he sponsored them to move over. So that was like the first migration. It wasn't me necessarily, but it was my parents and their family migrating over and me kind of taking on the experience of being essentially a first generation immigrant. I considered myself a very proud Texan. I was born in Houston. And if you know anyone from Texas, we're just very proud of our heritage. And we joke about us being our own country. And so during college, when I 
decided I was going to move to Los Angeles to do a few years of missionary work in the inner city, it did feel like a second transition, partly because of that strong like Texan heritage, but also because, you know, like there's a very big difference from moving from the deep south, not really deep south, like Texas is, is its own thing, really. Uh, Texas, you know, conservative Bible Belt, very different culture to Los Angeles, very artsy, very free, a lot more secular. There's a lot more interesting new agey ideas that kind of go on. So there's a lot of different dynamics there, right? And it definitely felt like immigrating to a different space. Sure. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I watched Friday Night Lights, so I know all about that. <laughs> I live Friday Night Lights. I was in the I was in the marching band, so that was like every Friday for me during. Oh wow! Yeah. Oh, that's such an emotional show. Total side note. <laughs> yeah, I mean, while it is a TV show, I do know other people from Texas too. My brother had lived there for some time, and it definitely has its yeah, it's its own country in so many ways. So I can imagine moving to the West Coast to Southern California was definitely it's a completely different culture. Yeah, not in a bad way. I really do like aspects of it. I'm not a fan of the traffic, though right now it, that doesn't seem to be an issue. <laughs> I know, right? So weird. <laughs> it's very dystopian. It's like a scene from The Walking Dead, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> James mentioned that his parents were Taiwanese. So I asked him how being Taiwanese is distinct from being Chinese. That's a really interesting thing. So it's, it goes into a lot of politics that, you know, from an American-centric view, don't really get talked about. But what really happened was if we go back in time with the history of China for thousands of years, China was essentially ruled by a monarchy, an emperor, right? And then in 1911, there was a democratic revolution that overthrew the emperor. And for 20 years, China was kind of experimenting with pseudo-democracy, but like a lot of the pseudo-democracy of the time, it ended up essentially being a dictatorship. Around that same time, communism was kind of rising, and then the Japanese were invading from the islands. And what happened basically where there's all these forces kind of trying to assert control, essentially. And what happened was the communists ended up coming on top. That's what we have right now in the government in China is the People's Republic of China. The pseudo-democratic government of the time, they fled to Taiwan, which was just a small island province off the coast of China. And they were just gearing up to essentially retake the mainland. So for a long time, there was this kind of weird situation, kind of like North and South Korea, where you know they're not really fighting, but they're not really friends. And eventually that just kind of became a sort of status quo where you had these two countries, but they each considered the other country to be a part of their own territory. And these days it's been over the decades, you've seen like a very strong power shift, whereas initially a lot of countries are in favor of Taiwan because it was a democratic country. They had a seat on the National Security Council in the United Nations and all these other places. And now, because of the power of China, the tables have flipped, right? So one of the most important things you'll notice, you might have seen on the news, is that Taiwan, which has been doing a very good job of fighting coronavirus, they basically have like zero cases right now. They don't have a seat on the World Health Organization because that seat is given to China. And according to, to all of these kind of diplomatic rules, there can really only be one quote unquote China, which is the, the mainland. So that's kind of the story. Um, just to give a little history lesson there. Yeah, I know that's super helpful because I know that there is a distinction, though I just didn't know the history behind it. So that's really helpful. Yeah, it's been interesting to see during coronavirus kind of the sort of animosities between the mainland Chinese and also like other parts of Asia. Because if you think that like, you know, let's say white supremacist racism against Asians right now is pretty bad. 
just imagine like the racism of other Asians versus the Chinese, right? There's a lot of mistrust of the mainland and about the culture and the government. Some of it was really kind of unfair. And a lot of it stems from those politics and that sort of long history of different political systems, a lot of the power dynamics that are going on right now. And it's just really interesting how that happens. Yeah, that is super interesting. And I'm really glad you mentioned that because one thing that I've noticed, you know, globally is that, you know, as intense and unprecedented as this all is, it is very much revealing existing power dynamics and existing structures, right? It's just really highlighting their benefits or deficits, right? Exactly. Yeah, definitely see that in our country right now. I think it's important to understand these differences because nationality and politics often erase very nuanced and critical differences between identities and cultures. From personal experience, there's a differentiation between Gujaratis and Marathis, as well as different types of Gujaratis, just like there are so many regional differences in the United States. Lots of people outside the United States aren't aware of these because, well, why would they be? This is why it's important to grapple with these histories before making assumptions about belonging. These differences can also shape the art we create. I asked James how this history and his migration story is reflected in his writing. Part of my migration story is being the child of immigrants from Taiwan and then myself immigrating from Texas to Los Angeles. And each time that's happened, it's kind of given me a a more diverse viewpoint where I'm able to kind of see multiple different perspectives and to hold them and say, oh, here's what this particular group of people or this faction believe, and here's this other group, whether it's a political ideal or a cultural ideal, whether it's a division between like liberals and conservatives or people who are very religious and like very conservatively religious or people who are more on a secular, non-traditionally religious or maybe like a new agey kind of philosophy. And I think one of the things that that's really taught me in my writing is to try to get at as many perspectives as possible and not just try to write from a perspective, like one single perspective. Because I find that often when you do that, you end up basically doing propaganda, right? You're trying to push your own worldview. And that's like the only thing that's represented. Everything else becomes a caricature. And in my writing, which is largely fantasy, I really try to make an effort to show why different groups would believe the things they would believe. And I really try to also, if I encounter a group or a character that specifically supports a worldview that's more favorable to myself, I really try to hit hard at those aspects of that culture, which are not good, right? Because I think that it takes some sort of cultural humility to admit that there's some things that we prefer or that we come from that may not work the same way for other people, right? So for example, in my fantasy novel, I have a religion that's based on essentially like 20th century Protestantism especially like the missionary movements that were going over to China at that time. And, you know, obviously as a Christian, that's something I would view favorably. But one thing I have to wrestle with often in the story is the fact that a lot of that missionary movement carried a lot of baggage with them of imperialism and cultural supremacy. There was this assumption that if you're white and European, that's more Christian and therefore it's better. And to be Chinese or like traditional, that's like savage or uncivilized, right? And you really have to grasp with that fact that like there are these nuances when it comes to how we identify culturally and nothing is ever as clear cut as like this is good, this is bad, essentially. I think it really is important and it makes stories holistic to include those nuances. Yeah, you know, one thing like I often, you know, have trouble with is 
I just think like whenever it comes to like politics or something that pisses me off, I'm like, how could they even think that, you know, but I'm thinking that because that's how I think like I value X, Y, Z. So therefore this should be a simple decision, but that is not how everyone thinks. And if we only come from our perspective, we will never be able to understand that and not understand that to have empathy necessarily, but understand that to say, well, this is how this came to be. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think the beauty of storytelling is that you don't have to go in with a political agenda. And in fact, if you go in with a political agenda, that often makes it a bad story, right? The beauty of storytelling is that you can draw people into characters and show that point of view without supporting that point of view. And you can create the sense of empathy that isn't advocating what that group necessarily believes, but it just shows them and portrays them as a real person, right? And you can kind of walk the reader through the thought process of that particular person. And if you're doing a good job, it will come out as realistic, even if your author's voice shows that you don't agree with those people. Yeah, definitely. I think you bring up a really good point because I I do consider myself a political person and I consider everything around me to be political, you know, whether it's the sidewalks I walk on or the policies that shape my city. But I do think that if an artist can really convey multiple viewpoints and even make something that someone might traditionally hate, like be able to evoke empathy. I mean, that is talent right there. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. To kind of cite uh, one of my favorite movies right now, Parasite. I think in the hands of someone who was like a political demagogue, it would just be this sort of leftist power fantasy where the poor family is just the good people and the rich family is bad, right? But because Bong Joon-ho is such a good and talented and empathetic director, he's able to draw out the fact that no, both of these families are like just people, right? They have their strengths and weaknesses. No one is totally bad. It's just that the dynamics in that story kind of separate people. And that's what creates the conflict. Yeah, definitely. I'm really glad you mentioned that because as you were saying that I was just imagining the characters and thinking about different scenes where they really humanized, you know, the wealthy father and the mother and whatnot. So yeah, definitely. That's a great example. So could you tell me why fantasy? What do you like so much about it? Yeah. So I love fantasy because I love reality. That's like kind of a weird way of putting it, but that's true, right? I come to fantasy because I read something in history or I read something in sociology and I'm like, this is amazing, but I don't want to write an academic article on this. I don't want to write a nonfiction article. I don't want to write an op-ed. I want to fill a world with real people grasping with this issue, right? And usually the best way to do that is fantasy because when you're in fantasy, like you kind of have the whole breadth of flexibility to do whatever you want with the story, right? So for example, my current story, it's set in a world very much similar to 1930s China. Um, this is on the eve of World War II, right before the Japanese are invading. There's all of this political turmoil. It's essentially like an Asian Game of Thrones, but set in a more modern setting. That's how you could think of that period of history. But I didn't want to just write a straight up historical novel because then I would be limited to some extent to the actual facts and the actual events that happened during that time. So what I did was I created a fantasy world, much like how George R. R. Martin did with Game of Thrones, where he took a historical time period, the War of the Roses, but he was able to use those archetypes and use those events and kind of riff off of them to create a totally original story that nevertheless feels unique and it feels authentic because he's using kind of real world history. 
right? And so that's kind of what inspires me as fantasy is to take real world history and real world sort of dynamics and transfer that over into a world that's not like our own. So I'm not really a fantasy reader, but I feel like the interesting components of fantasy are the ideas of magic and power. Would you say that also appeals to you with fantasy writing? Yeah, 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 exactly. So that's another point is like you get to explore like real world themes in fantasy, but you explore in a way that kind of disarms people. So it goes back to the empathy thing, right? Like if you go at a person with an op-ed and say, imperialism is bad or racism is bad. Like sometimes people have these sort of their defenses already up because they see these trigger words and they're like, okay, well, I already know where I stand on this. And they've already prejudged where they're going to stand. And that filters into how they interpret your opinion. But with a fictional story, what's beautiful about it is you don't start with the politics. You don't start with those opinions. You start with the people and their experiences And you see how those political things, which are important, all those themes, they still matter, but you see them affecting the people in the world, right? You see how racism affects a person who's a minority. You see how imperialism affects those who are being subjugated, right? And you start to empathize with them. And it's a very disarming way of convincing people of things that normally they might be very defensive about. In the past five to seven years, I've really evolved my thinking of the world into a structures systems approach, meaning that the structures we live in can greatly affect individual quality of life, health, etc. Whereas before, I thought these qualities only began with the individual. What James is talking about took me back to this, because for most of my life, I thought more on an individual basis. And even though I do think of these structures and systems, the individual is where the story all begins. James talks more about how this actually can help us understand the universal. They always say, like, it's easier to convince someone of something if you start with a story of a specific person, right? They say the rule is in writing. The more specific you become in your writing, the more universal it is. And I think that's true, right? If you get at a specific story about a specific person, that's so much more powerful and so much more compelling than often these, like, broad strokes discussions about wide swaths of people. I never heard that about the specificity of a character, but now that like, I think about stories that have been really compelling to me, and most definitely that has been an element in those stories. Can you tell me more about like your background in terms of your interest in writing, where it sparked from, and how you've kind of learned like tips like that? When I was a kid, both my parents worked, and so my grandfather would watch me which meant that the TV would watch me, essentially. So I'd sit in his house and I would just kind of watch TV. And when there's no like cartoons on, I would just be alone and like create these stories in my head. So that was the first iteration was just having stories in my head, just like mulling over them. And for a long time, I was like, well, I can never write a book because who can write hundreds of pages? That's just crazy. But a little after college, I discovered this, I guess it's a challenge called National Novel Writing Month, where the goal is to write a 50,000 word novel within a month and just write as fast as you can. And I tried that and it was this amazing sort of revelation that, oh yeah, you know, if you put in a little work every day, like 1,000, 2,000 words, which isn't really that hard to get if you're set your mind to it, you can actually cover a lot of ground within a short period of time. Granted, I've never actually finished National Novel Writing Month. Like every time I tried it, I failed. But it did teach me what it means to just like put words on a page and not really worry too much about going over it, like constantly editing, just kind of encouraged me just to get the words out and put them on a page so that they're there and they're not in my head anymore. 
besides that, I often just am constantly reading books on the craft. I guess one of my favorite uh, writers slash like writing gurus would be Stephen Pressfield. He is pretty popular. He kind of advocates this idea called blue collar writing, where, you know, a lot of people treat their creative pursuits as something like very precious. They kind of want to make everything perfect because it's so close and near and dear to their heart, right? Whereas Pressfield's kind of perspective is that you should treat writing as any sort of craft, like an accountant. An accountant doesn't say like, oh, well, you know, I'm not inspired today, so I'm just not going to do the numbers, right? And so in the same way, like with writing, we should treat it as something we show up to every day and take seriously as if it's a craft. And we like don't make excuses for ourselves. We push through the lack of inspiration because inspiration isn't really, you know, it just appears and then you like write something amazing. Inspiration is more like digging for treasure, right? You have to get through all this dirt before you get the treasure. I don't know if that metaphor makes any sense, but you kind of have to shovel through a lot of crap to get to the inspiration. That's kind of my take. Yeah, I think that totally makes sense for sure. I feel like I also hear that a lot and I completely agree that it is creating a practice and a habit that really gets you places like it's like getting those words on the page. I mean, your first draft is probably going to be a shitty draft, but like you have to start there. Yeah, I think the best advice I ever got was embracing the shitty draft. That's actually a good part of the process because it means that you're getting all those ideas out. They're not precious to you. And then when you go back and try to make it good, you have something to make good, right? Yeah, definitely. I know you talked a little bit about some of the themes you are exploring in your novel. Can you talk more about, um, because I know you mentioned cultural imperialism. What other themes do you like to explore? Uh, So that one's a big one, right? Just the idea, especially because this is an East meets West story. One of the big kind of problems with just the encounter between like Western and Eastern civilizations has been this sort of question of like, well, whose ideas and whose cultural ideas are the best, right? And for a while, like earlier on, if we're talking about like Imperial China, there was a strong sense of cultural superiority, right? Even the term for the Chinese country, Zongguo, it means center kingdom. So it's basically saying, you know, we are the middle, everyone out around us is a barbarian, right? And then later around the 18, 1900s, that kind of shifts because the Chinese empire kind of goes into decline and the Western countries kind of become more prominent. And so it flips where it's the Westerners coming and saying, oh, well, look at these savages, right? Look at these people who aren't Christian, who aren't civilized, who aren't scientific, who are stuck in tradition. So a lot of my fantasy kind of talks about that sort of cultural imperialism and who gets to say, like, what happens when someone comes in that's more powerful and says, this is a better way of doing things. So that's definitely one. I think in general, like, at the core, fantasy is really all about power dynamics. Who has the power in society? Which groups have power in society? And how that affects the world. That's really what like the best fantasy is always about. Because once again, fantasy is a way of exploring real world dynamics and doing commentary on it in a way that's also kind of enticing to the reader. Other themes, I guess, I talk a lot about religion. I think that's often a theme that gets left out, partly because I think in general, like, as a society, we're becoming less religious. And so there's less people who feel like they can competently talk about this. And when they talk about it, sometimes it just becomes a caricature. But, you know, I think as someone who has kind of lived with religion my whole life, it's allowed me to see both like the positive and the negatives. And it's definitely a dynamic that's really important to people's lives that often gets ignored because there's still so many people, like even though we're kind of moving towards a less religious society, it's still very important to a lot of people's lives. And even people like, I think one of the most shocking things to find when I moved to Los Angeles was that even though this is a very kind of secular city, there's always people talking about 
the universe, right? There's always people talking about crystals or aliens or all these things. And it was really shocking because I, I didn't think that all of these ideas that aren't strictly religious, but are like more spiritual would have such a hold in a city like this. And it kind of goes back to a quote I read from David Foster Wallace, where he says, at the end of the day, everyone worships something, right? And I think that whether it's like worshiping, like you're like going to an evangelical mega church every Sunday, or you're going to your yoga class, right? <laughs> it's like there is this level of worship and this need to be a part of something bigger than yourself that is really important to our lives. And that's like definitely a theme I, I like to wrestle with. Yeah, I think that's super powerful. I remember you telling me that Asian fantasy is pretty new. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think it's really exciting that you're exploring that and adding a voice to the genre. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, traditionally, when you think of fantasy, it's things like Game of Thrones, things like Lord of the Rings, right? It's European-centered it's about knights and dragons and chosen princes and kings and whatnot. And those stories are good, but there's a lot of tropes that are kind of overdone now and kind of have become stale. And I think the best way to deal with the staleness is to realize, well, there's all of these other cultures that have other tropes and other ideas, right, that are out there that don't get talked about. And that's part of why, you know, fantasies from places like Asia or Africa or even like indigenous American fantasies are really important because they get at those ideas and they get at those themes. For example, I'm reading the Green Bone trilogy by Fonda Lee. It's basically think of like a Hong Kong gangster movie, but all the gangsters have magical powers. Uh, it's really cool. And one of the things it talks about is intergenerational conflict, right? Because this is like an Asian gang family and there is kind of the patriarch of the family, the grandfather, and then there's the multiple sons, and then there's also children under them. And there's all of this conflict between multiple generations that you wouldn't get in a normal kind of Western story, because in Western stories, you really just think of, oh, who's my father or who's my son, who's my son or daughter, et cetera. It's like a very limited view of family. Whereas in Asian society, it's like you have your grandparents, your great grandparents, you have your uncles, you have people who aren't even related to you, but like you call them aunties and uncles. So there's a very expanded view of what it means to be family. And so I'm reading this gangster novel and I'm like, wow, the most beautiful thing about this is the way she talks about intergenerational conflict. And this is amazing. I'm less interested in the magic than I am in this social dynamic, right? Yeah, that is really cool knowing that there could be a whole, like totally different structures that just haven't been explored because so often these novels are focused on, you know, the, the Western European side of things. So you mentioned Fonda Lee. Do you have any other recommendations for other Asian fantasy authors? Yeah. The other one is Rebecca Kwong. She wrote a series of fantasy novels. The third book is just coming out this year, I think. And it's called The Poppy War. It's basically a grim, dark fantasy set in a world based on like Song Dynasty China. Uh, very interesting. There's like action, but there's also like a lot of reflections on violence and kind of the effects of violence and how it changes people essentially. So that's one I would definitely recommend. I think my favorite writer though in this genre would be, there's this guy named Gene Yang. He's a Chinese Catholic from Northern California and he is an incredibly amazing comic book writer. If you have heard of his book, American Born Chinese, it's this really incredible comic about this Asian American kid who wishes he were white essentially. And it kind of explores that idea of the model minority and how often Asians are like kind of viewed as, oh, we're just white, 
but like one step lower on the class rung, essentially. And he also has this really good duology of comics called Boxers and Saints that explores the uh, the Boxer Rebellion in China, where basically there was this populist uprising, a very violent uprising of the Chinese populace against Westerners, against Western imperialists, and also missionaries. And so one of the characters is caught up in this rebellion. The other one is a Christian convert. She like basically has these visions of Joan of Arc. And it's this really cool interplay because their stories connect and you see how the same characters pop up in these different stories and they have totally different effects on the characters depending on where the characters come from. So for example, like there's this priest who is very integral for the Christian girl. He's very integral to her faith. And yet he's the one who creates all the conflict and the suffering in the boy's story, right? And so you get to see how different perspectives, how the same issue or the same person can create different, I don't know, good and bad things based on, you know, where you're coming from, essentially. Yeah, it sounds very layered. That's really interesting. Exactly. I also wanted to ask, um, in terms of more books about the craft itself, do you have other recommendations? Yes. So my number one favorite book right now is The Emotional Craft of Fiction by Donald Moss. It's basically a handbook, very short handbook, less than 300 pages, actually around 200 pages. And the whole premise of the story is that it's teaching you how to write with a sense of emotion and to make the reader feel something, right? So many of these books on craft have a silo mentality. It's like, here's a book on character, and here's a book on plot, and here is a book on your setting. And hypothetically, if you like it, they take a really reductionistic view where hypothetically, if you learn all these little segments and then you just put it together in your mind, it'll create a good story. And Donald Moss is like, no, no, no. What matters is ultimately how the reader feels as he's reading. And I'm going to show you how to make your characters emotional. I'm going to show you how to make the plot emotional. I'm going to show you how to make the setting emotional. So what he does that's, I think, really brilliant that a lot of other writing guides have failed to do is achieve a sense of unity, which is really what a good story is. A good story has to have a unifying principle in it. Uh, So that's my top one right now. I'm also going through a book called Story Grid by Sean Coyne. This one's a little more technical, but it's an editing tool where you literally get a spreadsheet. So it's very analytical, which is very different from what I'm used to as a writer. But the premise is that you get this spreadsheet, like open an Excel spreadsheet, and you write out all your scenes, you write out how long the scenes are, and you basically create a grid for your story, like a graph, right? Graphing the themes so that you can actually visualize it and see, oh, well, this is where I'm emphasizing this theme, and this is where it really comes to climax. Oh, but here, there should be a rising action, but it's actually not present here. So it's like a way of diagnosing the problems in your story. Interesting. Very cool. I think it's important to have like some more technical resources as well as others that are less technical, just so it could be more holistic. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, this was such a great conversation. I really enjoyed chatting with you about your background and diving into fantasy. And I'm actually now really intrigued with some of the series that you mentioned. I'm, I'm curious to potentially pick up the genre and read it. <laughs> Definitely. There's some really good writers. I mean, I feel like right now all the Asian writers are really kicking butt. They're all women. Uh, so Rebecca Kwong and Fonda Lee, they're like killing it, right? So I hope to follow in their footsteps at some point. Yeah, definitely. I cannot wait to hear more. Thank you so much, James. Of course. A couple of things from my conversation with James stuck out to me. One is about bias in writing. 
As I mentioned to James, I think politics is everywhere, from the obvious places like political parties and policies to the non-obvious like our drinking water. I think these days we are seeing how the non-obvious things are politicized in terms of our supply chain and its effect on the global market. So when James talked about not being political in storytelling, I was initially skeptical. But as he talked more about it, I realized that by giving voice to different viewpoints in a story, especially through character, it allows the reader to empathize with the situation. It provides emotional valence while also introducing the many ways people think. After all, novels aren't op-eds. But I think it's important to remember that, like James said, so many voices haven't even been represented at all. Or oftentimes we see racial and gender tropes that don't provide any variation. So while it makes sense to not create caricatures by introducing a one-sided political narrative, to do so, it's critical to include voices that haven't even been part of the conversation. I also really enjoyed how James talked about creativity in terms of work ethic. I think that we romanticize creativity as these bursts of inspirations, as James discussed. But that's not always how it looks. It can be frustrating and uninspiring, but some of the best writers and artists I know still move forward. Writing, like anything, requires practice. Of course, I think it's important to invest in self-care and avoid burnout, but I also think this is a stereotype that needs to be busted. As always, I'd like to thank my creative talent that helped me make this episode. Thanks to Tiffany Wong for your help with the Migrations cover art. Thanks to Shin Kawasaki for the Migrations song, Find Another Way. And thanks to Quincy Surasmith for editing this episode. And, of course, I want to give a shout-out to my $20 a month and above patrons. So thank you to my brother Shalin and Dahlia Garhan for your generous support. Thank you to all my Patreon patrons. Remember, you could support this podcast by going to www.patreon.com migrations. Thank you, and until next time.